Okay, good morning everyone. <clears throat> want to thank our sponsors this morning for our Parsha class, sponsored by Floyd and Phyllis Bernstein, in honor of Klal Yisrael, a worthy honoree. So, Shkoya, thank you very much. If anyone wants to sponsor in the future, please speak to the uh, Shul office and we appreciate your generosity. As always, we'll do an overview of the Parsha and then we'll go back and delve into specific Psukim together. This week we have the privilege of studying Parsha's bow, the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, page 340. We are picking up where the narrative left off last week. We've begun the Makos. God decides that it's not enough to redeem His people through some momentary transition, but the Ribbon Shalom, the Master of the Universe, deems it necessary to provide pomp and circumstance. The Egyptians have to suffer. They have to be smacked over and over and over again. And God orchestrates everything in order to achieve that outcome. It requires hardening Paro's heart, which we're not going to discuss, but the famous question, what happened to free will if God can dictate the terms, if there's predeterminism, what happened to Paro's free will? But God chose to harden Paro's heart and against one's natural inclination and against all instinct to not give in to the pressure and to the incentive to release the Jewish people. Paro was stubborn and steadfast to hold on to them and that enabled God to have a platform to perform the ten makos. Not one, not two, not five, not seven, ten world-transforming suspension of nature, magnificent pomp and circumstance, divine revelation that is almost unparalleled in human history. So those makos began last week, and we picked them up here today. So the, uh, the parsha begins with the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. When God brings locusts down all over uh, Mitzrayim, and of course the people are covered by them and they sustain all of the, uh, the plague of having locusts. The ninth plague is choshech, darkness. We've discussed darkness at length in the past. You could listen online. <clears throat> we provided four or five different interpretations of what is this darkness. According to some, it wasn't a physical darkness in the atmosphere. It was a darkness in their eyes. All of the Egyptian people simultaneously suffered cataracts. All of them simultaneously had glaucoma, macular degeneration, whatever the ophthalmological disease. They all simultaneously went blind. Their vision was clouded. They weren't able to see. And according to those interpretations, that's why the Jewish homes remained illuminated. They could see it was only the Egyptians. Others say that there was a tangible darkness. It's not just darkness, which is the absence of light. Normally darkness is just when you remove light. Turn off the light and it's dark. You don't add darkness, you don't contribute darkness. Some say this Makkah of Choshes was a tangible palatable. but you could feel the darkness. It, was, it consumed you, it, it blinded you, it prevented you from perceiving anything. The great Chidush Arim, the Ger Rebbe, says that the darkness, it says, a person could not see their brother. 
Says the Chidush Arim, the darkness was neither in the atmosphere nor in the eyes. The darkness was in the heart. When a person is so narcissistic, so self-centered, that they can't even see their brother, they're living a life of darkness. They're cloaked in darkness. Kedush Arim homiletically says, that was the Choshech again. We've studied more interpretations. I want to share with you quickly one more I saw this year, I had never seen before. From the Slonim Rebbe, is Nesiva Shalom. Slonim Rebbe notes that the Pasuk describes, Vayomer Hashem HaMoshe Neteyas Yadcha Shamaim. He tells Moshe, extend your hand towards the heaven, choshech al Eretz Mitzrayim, and there'll be darkness upon the Egyptians. And the Medrash asks, From where did Moshe draw this darkness? Where did it derive from? And the Medrash answers, It comes from the darkness of above. And it quotes a Pasuk. And the Slonim Rebbe is bothered. Darkness above? There's only light above. We associate our image of Shemaim, of the heavens, where God dwells with light and clarity, brightness and beauty. What does it mean? Moshe drew the darkness from the heavens, pulled it down and spread it on Mitzrayim. So the Slonim Rebbe says, quotes the Sefer, told us Yaakov Yosef, and he says the following. Very interesting. He says, you know, if you've been inside all day, a room with no windows, you've been inside a building with no exposure to the outside, you've been inside a cave, it's been dark, and then you step outside into the light, what happens to your eyes? You squint, they close, blinds you. When you go from darkness to a sudden, intense exposure to light. You're blinded by the light such that it impacts you as if it is dark. Says the Slana Marebbe, Moshe, there is no darkness above. Heaven is a place of brightness and light and beauty and firmament. What does it mean when the Medrash says Moshe got the Choshech from above and brought it down? Says the Slana Marebbe so beautifully. What it means is, Mitzrayim is a place of darkness. It's a prehistoric cave, morally speaking. It's a decadent, corrupt place of moral depravity. We know that Mitzrayim is the 49th, the lowest level of impurity in the world. It's the ultimate darkness. Moshe extends his head into the heaven and he takes this injection of Ruchnius. He takes this incredible spirituality, the light of Shechina, of godliness, and he injects it, he imbues it onto the Mitzrim. And when you're in a dark place, and suddenly you're exposed to a bright light, it blinds you. It makes you feel that it's dark. And says the Slonim Rebbe, based on the Medrash, that was the Choshech of Mitzrayim. Somewhat paradoxically, the darkness of Egypt was how exposed they were to the light of Shechina, of Torah, of spirituality, which for them, it blinded them. He goes on, he says, we're going to read about when the Jewish people travel, it says that they went three days, they didn't find water, and Chazal interpreted water as Torah. They went three days without Torah. And then what happens? Finally, they get to water, and how does the water taste? Bitter. It's a beautiful Kotzka Rebbe. It says, 
that the water tasted bitter, kimarim haim, which we normally interpret the water was bitter because the water was bitter. <laughs> the Katzka Rebbe says, kimarim haim. Haim is a pronoun. Says the Katzka Rebbe, kimarim haim. You know why the water was bitter? Because they were bitter. They were fabisana. They were slayed. They were still victim. They carried themselves as victims. They were negative. They were toxic. So kimarim haim. When you're bitter, everything tastes bitter. But anyway, says the Sonam Rebbe, they travel three days, no water. They finally get to water and it's bitter. Why? If Mayim Torah, when they finally get the water, how could Torah ever be bitter? So says the Sonam Rebbe, because when you are living in darkness, the longer you go without water, without Torah, you become spiritually dehydrated. And when you're spiritually dehydrated, then the water at first can taste bitter until you acclimate once again. And that's the image of Mitzrayim. And it's the image of our going too long without Torah. Is that the longer we're cloaked in darkness, I'll give you another image. Maybe you could relate to. If you've ever worked out, exercised, so if you're consistent with your exercise, you get a good workout, and you're not in terrible pain. But Shloshes Yamim, you take a three-day break, and you start squatting again or lunging again, you can't stand up for a month. You're in such pain. When you take a break and it sets you back and you're exposed to the thing which is so good for you, it hurts at first. So the Mitzrim were exposed to the light of Shemaim, Mitzrim, Yotchel Shemaim. Go draw that Chosha. Go show them what spirituality really looks like. Someone living in a cave in darkness who's exposed to spirituality, at first they're blinded. It's like staring at the sun. You're blinded by it. So it's yet another interpretation of what this Choshech really was. But continuing in the parashas, so that's the ninth plague, the plague of Choshech, a plague, by the way, in which we're told that four-fifths of the Jewish people, 80% of the Jewish people, did not survive the plague of Choshech. Chamushim alu b'nei Yisrael me'eretz Mitzrayim, which Chazal interpreted to mean either Chamushim means armed, or Chamushim comes from Chamesh, one-fifth, only one-fifth, 20% of the Jews left Egypt. We celebrate this exodus, this mass exodus, the birth of our nation, of our people, Pesach, the Seder, Har Sinai, 20%. 80% never made it out. Did they assimilate? I suggested this past Shabbos, you know, when Moshe, last week's Pasha, God tells Moshe and Aaron, here's your mission. Go command the Jewish people and Paro to let the Jews go free. Command people? Command Paro, I understand. He is the oppressor. He is the despot, the dictator. He has to be commanded. Let them go free. But B'nai Yisrael? So we suggested last Shabbos that sometimes we are more imprisoned by our own self-imposed shackles than we are by the limitations and boundaries others put on us. B'nai Yisrael didn't believe it could get better. They didn't believe that they had the free will or the self-determination. They didn't dream and hope and picture 
a brighter future. 80% didn't think they were in control. They didn't think that they could drive their own lives. Only 20% grasped onto the message of hope and said, we're in. We could do what it takes. We're ready. Only 20% got out. Paro's offering, then his rejection, and finally the warning of the most severe, the most intense, the final of the makos, makas b'choros. Then we have the first mitzvah that's given in the Torah, which is the mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh, HaChodesh HaZalachem. Then even yet before we ever left Mitzrayim, and this is going to be our subject for today, God says, okay, here's the deal. I want you to set aside a lamb, tie it to the bedpost. It's the God of the Egyptians. It's going to be an extraordinary act of courage. You're going to take the God of your oppressor. And he hasn't been your oppressor for five minutes, or for five weeks, or for five months. He has been your oppressor for generations and generations. For 210 years, going back to your great-grandparents, they have watched the oppressor bow to this God. And now if I'm going to take you out, you have to do your part, says God. I'll meet you halfway, but I'm not doing all the work. You show some courage, and I will help take you out. So I want you to take this animal, the God of the Egyptians, tie it to the bedpost for how long? Four days. When was it God first told them to do it? On the 10th. Nobody even wants to talk about Pesach. <laughs> like an allergic reaction here. It was the 10th of Nisan, that year of the Exodus. What day of the week was the 10th of Nisan? Anyone know? Yes, mom. When was the 10th of Nisan that year? It was Shabbos, which is the origin of the name Shabbos Hagadol. It was called the Great Shabbos because on that Shabbos they showed extraordinary courage and bravery. They showed their conviction to the Almighty and they tied up that animal. For four days, till on the 14th they offer it, and the 15th they go free. And that's what comes next. So while they're yet in Egypt, God says, okay, you know what we're doing now with the animal, and we're going to sacrifice it, and there's something called matzah, you don't know about it yet, you haven't even left yet in a hurry, but you're going to leave in a hurry, you're going to eat matzah, you're going to eat marah, and every year you're going, maybe not so happily, but you're going to celebrate what's going to happen right now. You will commemorate every year going forward. Here's how you're going to commemorate it with matzah, with mar, with this carbon Pesach. We're going to go back and talk about that as well. The Pesach holiday, why it's called Pesach. We have the 10th plague. They finally leave. They're on their way. More laws of the carbon Pesach. The obligation of Zachor to remember and to recall the experience of leaving Mitzrayim and the firstborn. And finally, our parsha ends with one of the ways in which we commemorate the Exodus, namely Tfilin. What in the world do Tfilin have to do with the Exodus? Everything is the Exodus. Shema, we remember the Exodus. Shabbos, Zechi Yitzis Mitzrayim. Pesach, Yitzias Mitzrayim. The Tefillin, Yitzias Mitzrayim. It's a pervasive theme throughout our observant lives and lifestyle is to constantly go back. And if that's not enough, the Torah had said, remember, Don't forget it. 
Remember it. How could I forget? Every other minute I have to do a mitzvah whose essence is leaving. But on top of that is the overarching Zachor. Don't forget this incredible experience. Okay, that's the parsha. Let's go back. I want to ask you a fundamental question. The Makos. We began with this. The pomp and circumstance of the Makos. Why? What's going on? Why does God need to reveal Himself in such a seemingly ostentatious way? Just do something. Blink your eyes. Have Him be from Mitzrayim. Next thing you know, they're in Israel. You're all powerful. You're infinite, omnipotent God. You can do whatever you want. Why orchestrate things such that there's a world stage so first of all, the Torah itself, God Himself tells us the reason why He did it this way. Because He would never again reveal His hand so explicitly. And He wants us in perpetuity to be able to look back and point to those events and say, I know with full confidence that there is a God, that He's involved in our lives. You know how I know it? Not because I read it in this book. You know how I know it? Because once a year I sit down with my family And my parents tell me what they heard from their parents, who say 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 what they heard from their parents, who were there, who were in Mitzrayim. Just like many people, the Pesach Seder, when we talk about the Isha Amda, there are survivors who the other days of the year never ever talk about their experience can't, won't, but who had a tradition that on Pesach night with their family, they would tell their story. That's part of the Jewish narrative. It's part of the Jewish experience. So, please God, our survivors should live long and be well. But time goes on and the way the world works, we will soon no longer have survivors, first-hand accounts, And what will be the Seder of our grandchildren? They will get... They will get to Vihisha Amda. And they will tell their children and grandchildren what their grandparents used to say at the Seder. And their grandchildren will tell their grandchildren what their grandfathers quoted their grandparents as having said at the Seder. And will anyone say, you know what, I'm not hearing it firsthand. I don't know if it's true. Where does it say it in a book? We know our ancestors experienced and left Egypt with the level of veracity that we know our heroic survivors endured the worst atrocity known to man. Because they told the story and they tell the story and they pass it on to generations. This is a great opportunity to plug that the last week of June, my wife and I are leading a trip to Poland for one week. Those who want to go see Life was like pre-war, and obviously the camps, and the Kivrit Sadikim is a brilliant historian who's leading the historical aspect of the trip, and uh, you're invited to join us on the website if you want to see the itinerary and, and the details. So we know the story is true. So God says, as you will live your lives, and you will be uncertain, is there really a God? How do I know? And does He really care about what happens to me? You know what you'll stop and think? Say Shema, put on your tefillin, observe Pesach, remember Zachor. Hashem says, I want it to be permanently imprinted in your memory. 
that not only did I create a world, I didn't move on, I created a world that I'm intimately involved in the lives of all whom I created within that world. And if you feel a moment of doubt, if you feel a second of uncertainty, if you wonder where I am, just remember what you heard from your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents. In perpetuity, we can look back and point back and know that God didn't create and move on to another project. He created the world and He continues to sustain it. But why all the pomp and circumstance? So I want to share with you an Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra says, you know, the Pesach Seder, again, I see some of you breaking out in hives, but the Pesach Seder, <laughs> when we get to, you know, the part that people wake up a little bit, the kids, you dip your finger in the wine and the makos and dam tzvardeya and so on, Rabbi Yehuda introduces this brilliant, innovative, breakthrough, creative, magnificent introduction to our Seder. What did Rabbi Yehuda introduce? This incredible thing? Ingenious. What did he do? He made an acronym. The Tzach Adash Be'achav. I'm being somewhat facetious. Really? Rabbi Yehuda, the Tzach. Really? So Rabbi Yehuda combined them? Took the first letter? Does anyone stop to wonder, like, why are we... That's so brilliant. It needed a Rabbi Yehuda to come up with the acronym to take the ten plagues and lump them into three categories. What's really going on? So the Ibn Ezra says that Rabbi Yehuda is explaining to us the following. The Makos are not God ostentatiously playing His hand. They're not God trying to impress humanity. The Makos are a pedagogic tool. The makos are an educational experience. Now according to some, who is the beneficiary? To whom is this education directed? According to some, it's Paro and the Mitzrim. According to the Ibn Ezra, it is the Jews themselves. Eh, Paro, the Mitzrim, let them, let them be confused, let them worship idols, let them be off base. But says Hashem, my children, my Jews, I don't want them to be confused. So I need to educate them. And here's how I'm going to educate them. And Rabbi Yudha says that the Tzach Adash Be'achav is a curriculum with three lessons. The first question that Paro had is, Mi Hashem? Who's, who's Hashem? Tells me, oh, Mi Hashem. You come, you claim to be the agent the shliach, the representative of the Almighty, who's the Almighty? So, through Moshe and Aaron, God says, I'd like to introduce myself. Dam, Tzvardeya, Kinim. I'd like to introduce myself. That I control the world. That I can suspend nature. That you who worship the Nile, you who have no rain, but the irrigation system that nourishes Egypt draws from the Nile. I'd like to introduce myself. You know your sister, your sustenance, your water source? Take another look. It's blood. Hi, I'm God. Nice to meet you. Dam, Tzvardeya, and so on. What's Adash? Arov, Dever, and Shechin. 
is confirming Hashem's divine providence, His continued interaction with the world. Not just I created the world with nature and I can suspend nature, but I continue to provide providence and interact with the world. And Barad Arbe Choshech Makas Bechoros demonstrate, says the Ibn Ezra, that ain't owed milvado. It's not that God interacts with the world, but He's competing against other forces. So there's, first, nice to meet you, I'm God, I created everything. Number two, I didn't only create everything, I interact with everything. I have a continued providence with everything. And number three, not only did I create the world, and not only do I continue to interact with the world, I solely control the world, exclusively. Ainod Milvado. There's nothing but me. I'm not competing. It's no tug of war to determine what happens. It's all me. So says the Ibn Ezra, the Jewish people were the recipients of this education. The Rabbi Yehuda is not just a cute acronym or categories. It's three lessons in a curriculum of knowing that there's a God. And that's what will transform a slave nation to a people of the Almighty. The Chag Emuna. It is the holiday of faith. It's not a coincidence. The Chalban, we've quoted before the Chalban. The Chalban says that it's not a coincidence. And he quotes many sources. It's not his. The Sfasemis has this idea and others. How many plagues are there? Ten. And how many commandments does God give at Harsinai? Ten. And with how many statements did God create the world? The world was created through ten sayings. Until our generation, we had no idea what that meant. But today, we have speech recognition. Today, we can appreciate a tiny bit of a sliver of a tiny bit of what it means with ten ma'amaros. Today, you say, uh, car, turn on radio, call home. Today, I don't know, you talk to your phone. It responds, today, there's speech recognition. You say something and you create a reality. With ten sayings, God created the reality of the world as we know it. And then, ten makos. And then, ten aseres ha... We call them dibros. The Torah calls them aseres hadvarim. We call them dibros for whatever reason. But says the Chaban, the Sfasem, ten. Why? What's the difference between an Amira and a Dibur? Both are ways of describing speech. What's the difference between Amira and Dibur? So the Chaban explains, of Chaim Kohn, Amira is focused on the what of what I'm saying. If I tell you Amarti, you'll say, Ma Marta, what did you say? But Dibur is not focused on the what of what I said. What is Dibur? If I tell you Dibarti, you'll say, with whom did you speak? In me, Dibarta. Dibur focuses not on what I said, but with whom did I say it? Who am I communicating with? So God went from Asara Ma'amaros, God had the ten sayings, where He said, speech recognition, His speech created a reality. He said, hey Siri, make a world. And there was a world. God spoke, and it wasn't a question of who was listening. His speech created a reality. And then, 
He created a people to be the recipients of his next communication. So we went from Amorim to Aserasa Dibros. And what comes in between? Say this Vasem, Mr. Chaban, and everyone else. The ten plagues are also a form of communication. So we have the words where the message matters. We have the Dibur where the recipient, the communication matters. And we have the ten Makos which is a communication of demonstration. You are communicating through demonstrating. God is demonstrating that He created the world through the Ma'amarim. He's demonstrating that He will be involved in the Jewish people's lives through the Dibros. And that is the correlation, the theme that binds the three places where we see this theme of ten. It's God speaking, it's God demonstrating, it's God in dialogue, communicating with, with us. Okay, one last idea, then we'll get into the psukim themselves. It says, when God's ready to take them out of Mitzrayim, God says, quoting, uh, Moshe says, quoting God, uh, at about midnight, about, approximately, about midnight, I'm going to come take you out, and I'm going to strike all the firstborn of Egypt. Here's the problem. Rashi quotes the Gemara and Brochus. When Hashem communicated the message to Moshe that he was going to bring the tenth plague, he told Moshe precisely when that tenth plague would come. And what did he tell them? Did he tell Moshe, approximately about? What did God tell Moshe? Bachatzos, precisely at midnight, I will visit my plague. So why did Moshe change it? Bachatzos to kachatzos. Why did Moshe alter God's word from precisely midnight to approximately about midnight? So Rashi explains that it wasn't. Hashem, Moshe was worried about. It was Paro's astrologers. Moshe wasn't worried that God wasn't going to be able to deliver on time. God always delivers on time. If you've come to our Sunrise Minion monthly at the beach, it astounds me every month. You look it up, it tells you exactly what sunrise is going to be. You're davening, you look at that 6.02 and 42 seconds, boom! The top of the sun comes up, there it is. It's never late. It's also never early. You know, yekas are very makbid. <laughs> yekas are very makbid. You know, some say that, what do they say? That if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. If you're late, don't come. Yekas don't hold to that. Yekas hold, if you're early, you're also not on time. I, ho- I know that because some people come to meet with me. They come 20 minutes before the meeting. Then they're sitting there. It's awkward for them. It's awkward for Linda. It's awkward for me. If you're early, you're also not on time. On time is on time. You're not late, you're also not early. Sun doesn't come a little early. It's not trying to impress Hashem. I came up a little early today. Whatever time it says, that's exactly when it comes. So Moshe wasn't worried that Hashem wasn't going to be able to deliver. So he said, oh, about midnight, just to, just to cover Hashem's back. That's not what he's worried about. What is Moshe worried about, says Rashi? He's worried about power as astrologers. 
that Paro's astrologers who are calculating time, they might be off. What if the atomic clock is off? Someone's entire faith in the Almighty will be shattered because God said midnight, and according to my atomic clock, it was 11.59 and 42 seconds. It was 12 o'clock and 17 seconds. Clearly there's no God. So Moshe didn't want people who had miscalculated in order that they would then come to deny Hashem. And the question is very simple. These Egyptians had just experienced nine radical departures from the normal course of nature. The Egyptians have been smacked around nine times. They have sustained losses. And in each one of these, Moshe and Aaron say, okay, here's what's coming. And then it comes. And then the Egyptians beg, make it go away. So we really worried that the tenth time, if the clock was off, so it looked like 11.59 or 12.01, they're going to say, oh, there's no God. Was that a real legitimate fear, a reasonable fear that Moshe had to have about the astrologers? So Sefer Penina Malatora says, an amazing insight. Unbelievable insight. He explains that when reality is incongruous with what we want, when the message being broadcast our way is incompatible with what we want to believe or do, we human beings have a remarkable capacity to defy logic and common sense in order to defend and justify our behavior. So yeah, even after nine plagues of Moshe and Aaron predicting exactly this is about to happen, then it happens, then they beg, make it stop happening. The human capacity for denial when something is inconsistent with what we want to believe or do is boundless. So much so that if they were off a minute, even after the nine plagues in the tenth, they would have said, you know what? There's no God. He was 30 seconds late. Clearly, there is no God. An amazing insight of the Pnina Malatora. Okay, let's get to our Psukim. So, we last left off last year. We're in Perakir Bays. And we are up to Pasuk. Um, I think Pasuk Dalad. No, I'm sorry, Pasuk Ches. We last left off last year. Perakir Bays, chapter 12, verse 8. Where is that? The Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Page 350. What's going on over here? This is right before the 10th plague. And in anticipation of emancipation, God says, okay, here's the deal. Take the animal. We're going to make a holiday. This is what's going to happen. What does He do first? God gives them the very first mitzvah in the Torah. What's the first mitzvah in the Torah? The first Rashi on Torah says maybe the Torah should have really started from here. What's the first mitzvah in the Torah? HaChodesh HaZeh Lachem Rosh Chodeshim Rishon Elachem Lachad This month for you, the beginning of months, it is the first month of the year. This is the calendar organized according to the beginning of the calendar being Nisan. So God says, I'm giving you control of the calendar. You're going to look up when you see the new moon. Witnesses will testify. You control, you manipulate the calendar. We have the Homo Rosh Hashanah, which talks about the exact 
way the witnesses would come, how they were interrogated, could they travel on Shabbos, how it was communicated out to the masses. We suffer till today from a second day of Yontif because punishment for living in the exile. And if you live at a distance that you weren't able to be communicated to when Rosh Chodesh was, to cover your bases, you had to keep two days. They would send out messengers, then they would light, flag, light, light bonfires. The Mishnahists spell out all of the details. Why do we continue to have it today? It's a great discussion. So, not something, uh, not something that's negotiable, despite many people's... It is negotiable. Make Aliyah. If you're miserable enough to keep in the second day, it's a tremendous incentive for making, for making Aliyah. So we're given the very first mitzvah from the Torah. The first mitzvah from the Torah is, you control, you manipulate time. So when Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, falls, the 10th of Tishrei, what determines when the 10th of Tishrei falls? Is it God? God preordains, He sends all the Jewish funeral homes the calendar, and He says, this is exactly when the holidays will fall this year? No. God sits back, constrains Himself, and He says, it's up to you. Shabbos, that's automatic. Counts six days, every seventh day is Shabbos, since the beginning of time. As much as you want to make it later, push it off, delay it, make it come quicker, you can't control Shabbos. Shabbos, God says, is His. But Yontif, what do we say in Davening? Mekadesh Yisrael Yasmanim. On Shabbos, we say Mekadesh HaShabbos. God sanctifies Shabbos. Because whether we like it or not, ready or not, here it comes. Shabbos comes. God has sanctified Shabbos. It's Shabbos. But Yontif only comes when first Mekadesh Yisrael God sanctified us, and we, in turn, sanctify the Zmanim. Why is this the first mitzvah God gives? If you're God and you've just taken this people out of Egypt, a slave nation 210 years, you're finally making good on that promise to their forefather Avram, you're going to make them into a nation. What will you give them first? Shabbos, Kashras, Shatnes, Yom Kippur, Staka. We could debate what might be the appropriate first mitzvah. We could debate, but the Torah tells us what it was. This mitzvah of Rosh Chodesh, controlling time. The question is why? I've quoted often, I'm very fond of quoting this insight. It's really from the Sforno, but Rabbi Salavechik elaborates on it. And he says the following. The first commandment they were given in Egypt which signaled the commencement of their liberation was to mark time. A slave is relieved of mitzvah sasesha as mangrama, of time-bound commandments, because the slave lacks time experience. To the slave, time is a curse. He waits for the day to pass. The slave's time is the property of his master. No matter how hard he may try to be productive in time, he will not reap the harvest of his work. Therefore, he is insensitive to time. His sense of movement of time, the passing of hours, days, weeks, is very dull. Life to the slave personality is motionless. He lacks the great excitement of opportunities knocking at the door, of challenges summoning him to action, of tense expectations and fears of failure. Any faith which is inseparably bound up with time is inapplicable to him. The time awareness or experience has three basic components. 
First, retrospection. Without memory, there is no time. Second, the exploration or close examination of things yet unborn, of the anticipatory experience of events not yet in being. Third, appreciation or evaluation of the present moment as one's most precious possession. No one is worthy of time awareness if retrospection is alien to him, if he's incapable of reliving, recovering, and reproducing past experiences. Memory is not just a storehouse for latent impressions. There's also living memory, which reproduces and re-experiences the past. Past events, which are not re-experienced, belong to history. Belong not to history, but to archaeology. Indeed, the mitzvah of Sipar Yitzis Mitzrayim does not exhaust itself in a historical review of bygone events that have vanished completely. It is more than that. It's a drama charged with emotion and tenseness of participating in the past. Rabbi Akiva is not just a figure who lived many hundreds of years ago. He's part of my life. His image and te- teachings are integrated into my personality. When I think of Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Yeshua, Rambam, I'm not thinking about people who lived in antiquity or the Middle Ages. Their images have become part and parcel of me, of my eye awareness. On the other hand, to live in time and feel its rhythm, one must also move from the memory of the past to the unreality of the future. One must go from things and events that were and are no longer to that which will be real someday, even though it is not yet real. From reminiscing to anticipating, to live in time means to be committed to a great past and to an unborn future. Time awareness also contains a moral element, responsibility for emerging events and intervention in the historical process. Man, according to Judaism, should try to mold and fashion the future. This is exactly why he has been created as a free agent. Man is free to reach central and basic decisions that will determine his and sometimes the world's future. He goes on and on and describes that the slave has no time awareness. What does it mean to be free? What it means to be free is to control your time. We've spoken about in our lectures the best version of yourself, that magic number, 168. Anyone know what 168 corresponds with? That's how many hours there are in the week. You can't buy more hours. You can't bank hours for later. You can't slow down the passage of those hours. No matter how rich or poor, old or young, healthy and firm, we all have the same 168 hours. You could always have more money. You could work harder, get more money, take better care of yourself, have better health. But you can't add more to the time. Time is fixed. A slave has no control over that time. So explains the Rav, based on the Svarno, that the expression of freedom is determining your own time. Time management, time awareness, productive use of time. That's what freedom is all about. Okay, so let's get now to Pasuk Ches. Perak Yudbeis, Pasuk Ches. On that night in the future, when you will perpetually commemorate what we're about to experience now, says God, you're going to eat this meat on that night, it's going to be roasted and delicious barbecue. And you're going to eat with matzah and with maror. Says Rashi, We know we have a commandment, you're not allowed to consume the sinews, the bones, 
can't break a bone, no marrow, on Seder night of the Korban Pesach. Al Merorim, says Rashi, kol esav mar nikra maror. A grass which is bitter is called maror. V'tsivam lach maror zechel maroru as chayehem. And we were commanded to eat maror to remember and commemorate the bitterness of our experience. Can I ask you a simple question? Why? Seder night is about freedom. It's joyous. We're royalty. Why? Why do we have to do this all the time? Got to make everything bitter. Why? Why do we have to inject the memory of the bit? Just enjoy the freedom. Why is the memory of the bitterness so important? So let's forget that we were freed. Why do we have to remember how miserable it was? Not only that, it's out of order. Pesach, Rami Gamliel teaches the Seder. Anyone who didn't recite these three things, Snap and Yotze, Pesach, shouldn't it be Maror, Pesach, Matzah? First we had the bitterness, then God took us out. No, we didn't have time for the bread to rise, we ate Matzah. Maror, Pesach, Matzah. Why is it Pesach, Matzah, Maror? So the last question I'm not going to answer now, although I'll refer you to a brilliant article on H.com by a young, handsome rabbi in Boca Raton, and uh, that answers this, which is um, based on very fascinating research. I read an article in the New York Times about research, and then I gave a drusha where I asked that question, I gave an answer based on the research, and then somehow the H article got back to the researcher who himself is Jewish and has a Seder, and he loved the application of it to the Seder, and wrote back that he thinks it's 100% consistent with his research, and that was very gratifying, and go visit the article, it's very interesting. So I'm not going to get into the order. But why do I have to remember the Maror? Rashi says, Amirorim yochlu. You have to eat the Maror. We eat the Maror today. Maror today is rabbinic. The Ramban here points out, Says the Ramban, "Amratzus merorim yachlu, shiuru ba'achlu es abasa balayla zetzliyesh." The Rabbi said, "You have to eat the meat; it has to be roasted." Uva mitzvos im morim umatzos im merorim yachlu, and you eat the uh, barbecue flesh together with matzah and maror. V'chein al matzos merorim kamo im u'kamo vayevo anashim al anashim v'chein rosh akra v'akirbo. So, Maror has to be eaten with the carbon Pesach. Bizman, when we don't have a Beis HaMikdash, and we don't have the carbon Pesach, is Maror biblical? No. Our Maror today, we eat Rabbinic commandments. It's a Mitzvah Durabonon. What about Matzah? Matzah, we have two psukim. We have a separate commandment to eat matzah that never mentions maror in the carbon Pesach. Plus we have the commandment here for matzah. So therefore, since matzah is an independent commandment, totally unrelated to the Pesach, matzah remains daraisa today. Last year in the afternoon kolo, when we studied our Arve Pesachim, we studied this in depth. You could listen on Y.E. Torah if you like. So the Ramban points out that maror today is Darabon. But why do we have to eat maror? It's a happy night. So Rav Asher Weiss, the Minchas Asher answers, because when we eat the maror, what we're saying is that the bitterness also was for a purpose. 
that when we experienced the bitterness and we didn't understand it and we asked why, now we look back in retrospect and we understand there was meaning, there was order, there was purpose to it all. That even that which felt and tasted bitter is somehow all part of a master plan and somehow is all good. And the Minchas Asher of Asher Weiss quotes his Rebbe, the Kleisenberger Rebbe, who explained, that's what we're saying every time we say Shema. Shema Yisrael, listen, who's the Yisrael? Who are you telling to listen? The guy sitting next to you in shul? Talking to yourself, your own neshama. Shema Yisrael, listen to Pintaliyid in you. Listen. Hashem Elokeinu. Hashem, the Yudke Vavke, depicts Midas Ha Rachamim, the God of kindness and mercy, the good that we see. Elokeinu depicts Midas Ha Din, the God of justice. Shema Yisrael, listen, listen, you Jew. Hashem Elokeinu, what you perceive as Rachamim and what you perceive as Din, Hashem Echad. It all comes from the same God. It's all good. Painful things happen to good people. Bad things don't happen to good people. Painful things happen, but not bad things. And it all comes from God. Says the Sanzer Rebbe, the Kloisenberger Rebbe. Our minog is, we take our hand and we cover our eyes when we say Shema. Why? Why we cover our eyes? Simple understanding is, it's a biblical commandment. It's very important and serious. We seek to concentrate, to intensify our concentration. We cover our eyes when we say Shema. Says the Kleisenberg Rebbe, no. You know why you cover your eyes? Because when you make this affirmation that Hashem and Elokeinu, what I perceive as kind and merciful and what I experience as bitter, it all comes from you. God, I'm covering my eyes to show that I don't understand anything in the world. That when I look at the world and I think I can interpret right and wrong and good and bad and pleasant and painful, I'm covering my eyes. I am deferring, I am submitting to you that Hashem and Elokeinu, that which is compassionate and that which is, and that which is judgment, it's Hashem Echad, it's all you, I cover my eyes, I don't really, I think I understand things, I don't understand anything. It's an act of submission to cover our eyes and our perception of the universe when we declare this affirmation. And he says that's why we're eating this maror. Don't eat it when it's na. What's na? Says Rashi, You can't eat it too raw, too rare. It has to be fully cooked. Kim Sliesh, and it has to be roasted. Rashi, Vashal Mavushal, Kozeb Azharas Lasochlu. Rosho Akrav Akribo. It has to be roasted on the spit hole with its head on. One complete animal. Bamayim. It has to be in a liquid. Kim Sliesh. There's a low sase and an assay that it has to be roasted. Next pasuk, velososiru mimenu ad boker, vanosam mimenu ad boker, ba'ish shesrofu. And don't leave it over till the morning. You have to eat all the meat. If you leave it over, it has to be consumed on the fire. And how do you eat it? Remember, this is God predicting. 
They've not yet experienced the Exodus. God's telling them how they will celebrate. And here's how you're going to eat it tonight. Your pants are buttoned, your belt is tightened, your shoes are on, they're laced up. Car keys are in your hand. You're going to eat it speedily. It's Pesach for God. Wow. What is going on over here? Why does it matter how I'm dressed when I eat this commemorative sacrifice to remember the way we left? Belts tighten, shoes laced up, staff in your hand, keys ready to go. Says Rashi, Because that's how you would be if you were ready to leave. When you're ready to go, you need to exhibit preparedness that you are anticipating that you're really ready to go. Says the Svarno, Mizumanim Laderach, Kenyan, Baishanez Masnav, Lahoros Abitachon Bilti Misupak Bakel Yuzbarach, Biyosim Mechinim Atzma Derach Baodim Bebeis Kele. Svarno has beautiful imagery. All God said is, I'm going to take you out. 210 years of suffering, you might say, I'm staying in my pajamas. I'll tell you what. When you kill the Egyptians, when you clear the path, when I'm ready to go, I'll change. I'm staying in my pajamas. 210 years of this, I'm sticking in my pajamas. You let me know when it's time to go. <laughs> Says the Sforno, while they're still in Mitzrayim, still technically enslaved, yet they show they're ready to go. Belts tightened, shoes on, keys in hand, suitcase packed. Why? What are they showing? Bitachon bilti misupak bekel yizborach. It is an unwavering faith in the Almighty that He will make good on His promise. There are great rabbis who supposedly through the generations have had a suitcase packed by the door, ready for when Moshiach will come. Bechol yom I believe your promise, God. It could be any moment. My suitcase is ready to go. Bitachon bilti misupak Bakel Yisbarach. That's why they're ready to go. Says the Ibn Ezra, Uma kelchem biyadchem, staff in hand, lino gachamorim. Why was I saying car keys to translate staff? Because the Ibn Ezra says, Why do you need a staff in your hand? Shoelaces tied up, I got. Belt tightened, I get. Why do you need a staff? How else do you turn on your donkey? How else do you get it started? How else do you get it going? Linhoga chamorim, vayaches ha'ason b'makel, v'tam b'chipazon. And why did they go out? God describes that the exodus happens with alacrity, with zeal, in a hurry, speedily. B'chipazon. Why? Why? Says Rashi. Shelo yisakvu v'yemaru la'achlo l'fnei bo rego mashes sheipasach shem ha'pesach. So that they eat quickly before the fireworks begin of Makas Bechoros. And that's why he demanded they roast it, because roasting is the fastest form of cooking. But why Bechipazon? Kliyakar has a comment here. It says the Kliyakar, Bechipazon, Shechina, Avalosad Ksiv, 
Lo bechipazon teitzu. Kliyakar quotes the Medrash that says the manner in which they lay left corresponds with their perception of the Shechina. What does he mean? Biyar adavrahu, lefishi begeula zuksev Hashem holech lefneihem, mashma avalo ma'achareihem. Bef- uh, the redemption, it says, God walked before them. It sounds like God was not behind them. Why was God only in front of them, not behind them? Says the Kliyakar, where were they leaving? Egypt is disgusting. God's not behind them. He wants to make a beeline out of there. God's, excuse me, Shechina does not belong in Mitzrayim. So he's leading the way. He's only before them, not after them. So when God is only in front of you, then you go quickly because you're chasing after, you're keeping up with God. However, subsequently after this, God will be both before and after. If God is also behind you, it's inappropriate to be running away from Him. So that's the Kliyakar's interpretation. We are out of time. The Heliger by Moskowitz is here. But we will begin, please God, next year with the following two questions. So make sure to mark on your calendar, Erev Parshas Bo 2018. Following two questions. What but we still haven't satisfied. Why does God predict already in anticipation we're going to leave in a hurry? But moreover, wake a Jewish child in the middle of the night and they'll tell you, why do we eat matzah on Pesach? Why? Because we didn't have time for the dough to rise, we were in a hurry. What's the problem with that? What's God already telling them before they ever didn't have time for the dough to rise? I want you to know, when you leave, you're going to eat matzah, you're going to commemorate it every year by eating this food, which you have all the time in the world to make now. But don't make it now, because you'll make it later when you're in a hurry. What's going on? It's backwards. Matzah is somehow intrinsically connected with the way we left Egypt. Why? Did the formation of our nation, did the birth of our people need to be done b'chipazon? Why did it have to be done speedily, with a lacquer? What is the connection to matzah? And why does God call it Pesach? Why do you have to do all this? Because Pesach hula Hashem. Pesach hula Hashem. Pesach is for Hashem? I thought Hashem was Pesach on the houses. How is it a Pesach for Hashem? I'm tempted to go another hour. But next year, we'll cover these questions. Please God, next year. Everyone's invited tonight. Great Rivalries continues. Tonight's rivalry is between Peter Bergson and Rabbi Stephen Wise. Anyone know who Peter Bergson's real name was? Peter Bergson was not born Peter Bergson. He was born Hillel Cook, the nephew of Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKohen Cook. And the two of them had this rivalry during the Holocaust in America, what the role of American Jewry was in trying to, trying to fight for their brothers overseas. That is the topic tonight at 7.30. Everyone's invited to stay for the one and only Rabbi Moskowitz.